know, I come from a very, very rock pop, you know, omnivorous really, but they're definitely rock and pop sort of background. Great. And, um, and, and so maybe that, hopefully that's something that you've, that you've sort of picked up on in the book and uh, uh, that, that, that it's try, trying to sort of see, see Mozart slightly from that sort of perspective. Yeah. Uh, definitely. Uh, well, let me just start by saying I just love the book. I just found so many beautiful descriptions in there and so many wonderful aphorisms and great little great little um, word combinations, little tensions of words put together that I right. found very flavorful and very spicy. Oh, and, good. I'm glad and, to hear um, it. That's, that's great to hear. Yeah. Um, but um, so one of the things I love to let's just start this way. One of the things I love to do is um, with an author is try and guess what their background is just from reading the text. <laughs> Fine. I, I seriously, I could not figure out what your background might be. So okay, I don't know if that's us, a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, well, tell us a little bit about your background and what you studied and what you're focused on now and how you came to Mozart as a subject. Right. Well, I mean, maybe one of the reasons why that's a little hard to figure out is that it that there's a sort of underdetermination about the whole project that I that I hope meant that. Uh, uh, that, that it has a different sort of energy to it from the ways in which books tend to get written these days, which seems to me to be intensely overdetermined, you know, either by where an author is coming from or where the marketplace is taking them or where their careers are dragging them. And I mean, to say the least, there are extremely good reasons for that in any number of cases. Uh, but as it happened, I was in a position because I'd been mainly writing poetry for a number of years, or at least mainly publishing poetry. I've been writing other stuff too and done the odd essay and the odd, you know, um, other types of sort of prose writing around the place. Um, but I came from the poetry world primarily. Uh, so I really had a sense, you know, had a sort of a vision of, of, of writing as something that you just do because, you know, you need to write the next thing and, and the subject tells you what that next thing is going to be. And that's in a way that both the joy and the, uh, and the downfall of the poetry world is that that's the way that it operates. Uh, and uh, so I guess it seemed like a sort of worthwhile experiment to see whether I could take the, the joy of that and avoid the downfall, which is to say, take the sense that, that writing should be determined by uh, a, you know, a passionate commitment to having something to say about something, no matter what it is, uh, but avoid the downfalls of, of, uh, of um, uh, siloization and <laughs> being ignored uh, that the poetry world seems sometimes not just to fall into, but to positively caught. Uh, so that was, in a way, the, 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 the risk of the book. Um, I studied literature originally, uh -huh. um, and indeed um, modern literature. I mean, I, I, Oxford um, was, was, my, was my first degree, so that brings an entirely vast sort of historical span. Um, but, um, but I ended up concentrating on modern literature and the modernist literature. Hmm. Uh, and I had the sort of very beginnings of an academic career in that field. Uh, so I guess that's the other, the other strand I was bringing to this book, I guess, is a sense of uh, of wanting to figure out what modern experience is and what modern art is and what modern life is. And had been, you know, casting around for different ways to, to uh, explore that topic in my life really for a number of years, um, dating back to my sort of teaching days. Uh, and, um, it, you know, it was sort of coming together of a sort of passion for Mozart just as a listener with uh, a sudden sense that there was a real subject there. Um, in this topic of sort of modern life, modern experience, modern history, beginning to take form, the modern world beginning to uh, gestate, you know, complicatedly uh, and with all sorts of historical glitches and elements of sort of prophecy and belatedness and so on at the end of the 18th century. Um, all of that was what, was what you know, made, made the book feel um, possible, occasionally even necessary to me. Uh, so, um, but I, but, but, but on the other hand, I, you know, I've always been very proud of the fact that it was a circuitous route to writing this book and it took a long time to write partly because, you know, there was no reason for me to be writing it and certainly no one wanted me to be writing it. I mean, eventually people wanted me to be finished writing it. So I would stop claiming to be writing it, but that's a different story. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that's that's uh, one, one way of making it seem as though people want you to write a book and just bang on about it enough that they, uh, want you to get it done. Fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting. Well, now I can definitely see the poetry background. Um, right. I was actually guessing more sociopolitical, like you seem to know a lot about the Habsburg Empire and about Leopold and that whole yeah. period. And obviously, that's a fascinating period. I love I had one literature professor say, you know, we all get away with this horrible crime of describing every single period in literature as a period of transition. Yeah, right. <laughs> but, right. but tell us um, exactly how important and what the salient aspects of that transition are in the 1780s in Vienna. Yeah. 
And, exactly. Um, well, exactly. I'm, I'm glad that you've I'm glad that you've taken that line out of my lips so that I was probably just about to say it, and then you would have yeah. been having to avoid. <laughs> <laughs> but I think actually, in a, in an odd way, I think the really exciting thing about that period, I can now I can now I can now claim that this is what I was going to say all along. Whereas in fact, I'm really adapting myself to um, to, to what you've already <laughs> set me up for. Uh, is is actually the weird combination really of intense change with extraordinary stability and permanence. Yes, and yes. That's what's such an odd juxtaposition, I think, and that Mozart is really at the center of. And I think in a way that's what, um, it's one of the reasons why I felt like this was a good topic for getting at modernity generally, that, you know, I grew up, I, I was teaching and I was learning indeed, I was, you know, in critical theory and so on in the 1990s. Uh, and postmodernism uh, was all the rage. Uh, and modernity was taken to be this phenomenon of sort of, you know, liquidity and flux and all that is solid melting into air over and over again. And it's not exactly that that account of modernity is wrong, but I felt like there was something um, getting a little stifling and oddly re repetitive about something that claims to be in favor of flux and change in our accounts of it over the years. I, I think that's one of the reasons why postmodernism has sort of dropped out of view as a critical topic, while nevertheless still being really predominant as a, as a sort of sensibility. It feels like those arguments are still the arguments that we're having. We just don't call it that anymore. We sort of take that label for granted. Uh, and I think one of the things that the 18th century, the late 18th century helped me to get into focus is actually that extraordinary combination of permanence and change and the ways in which uh, the, the change is, is sort of dialectically related to, you know, in some ways, horribly repetitive, you know, intensely, violently solid forms of power and authority, uh, and how that's what modernity has always been about, actually, is, is, is that sort of tension. And there's something about, you know, as soon as I start using those, those phrases to myself now, because I've been sort of, you know, going over these ideas for a lot of time, such a long time, they already start to feel to me like descriptions of Mozart's music as well. Uh, this extraordinarily powerful drive towards both transformation and stability you know, towards, uh, towards classical balance and poise and clarity on the one hand and mischief and uh, metamorphosis and expressive liquidity on the other. And uh, so I think Mozart is, is, you know, particularly well-placed to tell us about this particular feature of modernity, which to me has started to feel like, you know, and I, I guess in a way this, is, this book has also been a product of, I guess what you might broadly call the Brexit years over here. I, 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 both, I both hope and do not hope that that term means as much to you over there as it does to us over here. I'd be, I'd be very happy to hear that you've never heard of it, except that might mean I had to explain it, which would be even worse. No, no, no. But, <laughs> um, but tension, you know, tension, I understand that, you know, the, the Brexit tension is actually very, uh, that, that rings a big bell, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I guess, you know, people writing in the States, obviously, you know, we're not going to necessarily use the T word, but, uh, you know, we, we, we all know what the back, we, we, know, we all know that, you know, that talking about modernity has taken a different sort of dark turn from previously, you know, it's had plenty of dark chapters, but it feels as though we're in the end game of a certain sort of vision of liberal progressive teleology um, that, that, you know, we, we, we need different accounts um, to, to, to develop out of. Um, and this felt like this felt like a sort of way through that for me for me too. Uh, so yeah, no, I mean exactly. You know, in a way, I guess the socio-political stuff. It, it's it, it's been a sort of hard one journey for me. I think in a way to get to a place where someone might make that mistake about me. <laughs> and I think I began more as a sort of modernist aesthete, you might say, someone yeah. who was really quite committed. Uh, you know, in embattled ways in, in 1990s seminars. And I think, you know, because I was wrong rather than because anyone else was wrong, uh, they were embattled, um, but, but, but really sort of interested by and moved by the topics of modernist abstraction and formalism and, uh, and artistic advance in, in, in that sort of old, you know, now old version of, of, of the new. Um, and uh, and it's, it, it, it's taken me a, a while to sort of continue my, to, to, I guess, put together my loyalty to that sensibility with an absolute acknowledgement of the historical socio-political stuff that, um, that I guess we're all sort of grappling with, you know, day to day these days anyway. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. So I really want to circle back to postmodernism, but mm -hmm. I have a number of things I want to get to first. Um, right. So the first two uh, subjects I want to talk with you about are the some of the key relationships in Mozart's life that you write about. Right. At one point, yeah. you say uh, something to the effect of that he he was very talented at being a son, almost as right. talented at being a son as he was a composer. I thought yeah. that was a really fascinating insight. 
Tell us about that relationship with his father and how history tends to sort of flatten out and, and two-dimensionalize that particular uh, relationship. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's so interesting. And, you know, Mozart scholars tend to, tend to split loosely into sort of pro and anti-Leopold factions. Right. I really tried to tried to maintain the sort of balance between the two, but Leopold Mozart, Mozart's father, was such an excruciatingly strong character um, that, that he, he almost dared everyone to take sides for and against him, including, you know, historians and biographers ever since. Uh, he was a very, very gifted, talented, commanding fellow um, from a very, very interesting, peculiar background, you know, a sort of version of an enlightenment intellectual in his peculiar sort of autodidactic way, but all mediated through sort of small town um, um, uh, you know, a small town Germanic sort of burgerlich at best sort of background uh, and no, no small degree of sort of poverty and, uh, and um, you know, quite a sort of, you know, close links to bohemianism that he was always extremely uh, at pains to dispute and to distance himself from. But he really had his, he really had a lot of different um, social loyalties pulling away at him. Uh, he was intensely conventional while being intensely strange and and uh, and idiosyncratic and egotistical. He was sort of bombastic. He was um, slightly less talented than he thought he should be, but he was smart enough to know it. Yeah. Uh, then this very very strange thing happened to him, which is that sort of all his dreams came true in the form of his son. And you know, in a way that 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 of course is you know, the ultimate dream. In a way, of course, it's the ultimate nightmare. I mean, getting your dreams come true is famously always the ultimate nightmare, right. but particularly when it takes on this sort of autonomous, strange, you know, life-disrupting, life-changing form that he couldn't not recognize. Um, so so, so in a way, you know, I, I, I guess I ended up thinking that the point of Mozart's father is that he set Mozart an interesting enough problem that Mozart had to be Mozart. And so in that, in that sense, at the very least, we should be grateful to him for, uh, for, for, for you know, bringing so much um, material to the table. And yeah, I, I think one of the things that I really ended up, ended up, you know, is one of the sort of key analogies, I guess the book is, is built on, is between these two facets of what I consider, you know, Mozart's talent, which is his, his musicianship and his talent for being a son, were sort of forged in the same very, very strange sort of high heat um, in, in, in the Mozart family. Um, and the two was really indistinguishable for him at so many stages. Uh, and um, uh, what's particularly exciting about that and what's particularly productive about it, why it made the difference that it did to music history rather than just, you know, one particular set of family psychodynamics is that I think 18th century music was full of fathers, you might say. Um, 18th century, you know, there'd that, been, that, been this great generation of Handel and Bach uh, you know, the, the two absolutely sort of titanic names, but there are many, many lesser names. I think, you know, in some ways equally important. The two Scarlatti's, Alessandro Scarlatti and his son, Domenico Scarlatti, um, being vital ones for me. Um, but Telemann equally, uh, then, you know, the French equivalents of Hamo and so on. The early 18th century, the first half of the 18th century had been a period of extraordinary Vivaldi, um, um, springs to mind, of course, too. I mean, a period of these uh, staggeringly sort of productive, domineering figures who'd really determined, you know, cultural authority and possibilities of, you know, pleasure and style and wit uh, over the entire continent. Uh, it had been it had been an amazing efflorescence, uh, but there'd been something really quite paralyzing about it. And I think by about 1750, the musical language was at such a pitch of saturation. You know, you can sort of hear it in quite a lot of Handel. You can hear it in, in, in late Bach. And because, you know, all the virtuosity of late Bach is that he needs to uh, be able to elaborate these unbelievably sort of wiry and complex traps that he's made for himself. And only he can navigate them. He gets more <laughs> and more labyrinthine, more and more billowing <laughs> uh, in his vision of the world. Uh, and, and no one could keep up. So, so we have the Bach sons. Uh, uh, you know, this uh, generation of, of Bach's own actual, actual sons, but we also have, you know, in a way, a generation of lost sons uh, between, I think, about 1750 and, and the emergence of Mozart. Haydn, of course, is older, but bides his time for all sorts of complex <laughs> reasons and indeed has the advantage of his strange retreat in, you know, Hungarian, uh, the, the Hungarian swamps at the Esterhazy Palace in order to distance himself from the scene. And we have a strange world where actually no one's quite sure which, which way music is going to go. There are all these quarrels about it. Gluck does, a, you know, a, a, an extraordinary job of trying to define how music should go in very polemical terms, but for all sorts of, I think, interesting reasons. His music doesn't quite command uh, the scene in, 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 in the ways that his claims for it could have made. 
And so the world in a way was ready, the musical language was ready for a great son, someone who could actually experiment precisely with uh, extraordinary quantities of cultural inheritance, if you like, with a different sort of freedom and dexterity and uh, an extraordinary mixture of um, loyalty and mischief, you might say, you know, loyalty yeah. and, and disloyalty. That again, I think is, is sort of what a Mozart musical phrase is made of, you know, to go back to that idea of intense desires for stability on the one hand and change on the other. You know, another way of putting that is being a good son and being a bad son. Uh, and it's as though the musical language, you know, demanded someone who was extraordinarily good at both um, in, in, in around 1775, let's say, which, you know, conveniently enough for my argument is as Mozart, you know, prepares to turn, you know, right, to, right. To get out of his teens. No, he's one of these, he's like a Lincoln or somebody who just like, he seems to suit the period just so beautifully. Yeah. Like, it's yes. like the period is constructed for this person to walk onto the stage. Yeah. Yes, yes. And those people, I mean, Lincoln's really interesting. The sort of, um, I, I, I like that analogy. I, I suppose, you know, the, uh, very 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 good at working with others you know to be that person you have to have an extraordinarily astute sense of what people need and what people are capable of yes you know, at that time yes and 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 like you were describing leopold acute self-awareness right right that seems to be a wonderful thing that leopold was able to pass on to mozart in in a degree that's really served mozart very well Don yes wasn't overwhelmed with he wasn't paralyzed by self-consciousness but yeah. he had he, he was able to apply a certain degree of self-consciousness that actually enhanced all the all the wildness and menace that he was yeah. busy trying to um, yeah. funnel yeah. into these forms. Yeah. yeah. So the other relationships I'd like to tell you about, well, first off, just parenthetically, uh, you never hear anyone talk about Mozart's mother. Right. Yeah. I'm curious if you learned anything about her or what that relationship was like, or was yeah. she completely marginalized? I mean, if you no, I mean, no, it's a it's I'm 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 sure it's a flaw of my book, um, along with all the others that, that I hadn't managed to dramatize that enough. I, I got really interested in her. I mean, in a way, it was because I was trying to begin the story at the end of the 1770s. So I I, I begin um you know what one whole strand of the book begins in Paris where, where she died. Um, um, on, on the great journey that she and, and Wolfgang finally took together after, um, for complicated reasons, it had been decided that Leopold should be sort of, uh, should step aside from the great enterprise of, of Mozart's career um, for a period. And, and, and Mozart's mother had this, you know, extraordinarily strange and intense the last year or so of her life traveling with, with, with Mozart um, through provincial Germany, through the parts of Germany that indeed she'd been from in the first place. Uh, and ending up in this very, very strange episode in Paris that I think was uh, was a really crucial time for Mozart. And, and um, but but it was a crucial time because I think he really he really um, burst out of, of of sonship of a certain sort of, of of the literal familial sort in any case. And and that was connected tragically with her you know unpleasant and early death at the hands of you know Parisian illness and very bad 18th century doctors. Um, but I think she was an extraordinarily, yeah, it's really hard to, it's hard to catch on to her um, with anything like the intensity that um, that, that she deserves. Um, but she does come to life in their letters to each other. And she has all sorts of cameos in the correspondence. She was obviously very funny. Um, she was uh, very um, uh, long suffering with these um, peculiar people in her life. Uh, you know, her, the, the daughter, Mozart's sister was also an incredibly talented musician. So the, the whole world was dominated by these um, brilliantly talented, very strange children. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, I do think she said, there's a good book um, uh, by Jane Glover, the conductor Jane Glover called Mozart's Women, uh, where again, actually, again, I don't think actually Mozart's mother it's it's it, it she, she's she's so hard to treat i don't think even i don't think even dane lover who does the best job on these sorts of topics of any book mm -hmm. that i know um that does it as well as i hope maybe someday someone will mm -hmm. but she's incredibly brilliant lover lover is very brilliant on mozart's sister uh and um and so brings the female side of the family uh mm -hmm. to life in that sense at least mm -hmm. with you know greater clarity than we've had before I think. so uh, then move on to um this a sisterhood he he had actually dated the older sister and then he married the younger sister yeah tell yeah. us about that family and his encounter with that family right so that comes from this it comes from this it's actually the same period it's the first time he's been allowed to travel 
uh, without Leopold. I was going to say on his own, but it wasn't on his own. It was with his mother being sort of still chaperoned. And it was meant to be a sort of, you know, a sort of ghost version of Leopold, I guess, from Leopold's point of view. And right. an experiment in, in uh, idiosyncrasy and in independence for, for Mozart himself. Uh, and the crucial encounter, yes, was uh, was uh, in um, Mannheim, as it, as it then was. Um, with uh, where there was an extremely powerful um, musical scene for, for all sorts of um, interesting reasons. It was really the, the crucible of the modern symphony was taking place with the, the Mannheim Orchestra at the time was um, the, 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 the great center of instrumental um, practice. Uh, and so it was a, a magnet for musicians. And there was this extraordinary family, the Weber family, um, with uh, the, its, its singing, singing daughters. Uh, and uh, Alicia Weber was... Um, the, the most talented of them, the one who went on to have the most important career and the one that Mozart fell in love with really, I mean, um, became really quite besotted by uh, on, on this, on this, in the course of this journey. Um, and, uh, you know, it's hard to know how much of it was ever genuine on her part. It's, it's clear that it was an absolutely, you know, defining passion on his part, um, but one with, with, the, with the ruthlessness of genius, he eventually managed to shrug off with um, quite bizarre ease, given the uh, you know excitement and high heat of a lot of his talk. Uh, in the meantime, while it was ongoing, um, she uh, she the, 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 the family then moved to to uh, during the period after she'd rejected him, and when he would when when they went in contact, uh, her family moved uh, to Vienna uh, via Munich. Uh, and when Mozart himself moved there in the early 1780s, they, uh, he managed a reunion with the entire Weber tribe, now lacking the paid of familiars, the sort of equivalent of Leopold Mozart, who'd been another very interesting figure in, you know, the sort of wandering circles of semi-enlightened, semi-Bohemian, you know, German intellectual classes at the time. Um, so Aloysia, by, by this stage, was already beginning to make a proper reputation for herself as a singer. As, and, and Mozart, uh, as, as I say, had actually um, shown, um, you know, this extraordinary capacity in a way for emotional metamorphosis already and recovering from the shock of, of discovering that she didn't love him um, a couple of years or so earlier. Uh, but he moved on with, with again, with, with, you know, quite sort of disarming, uh, almost sort of uh, uh, brutal pragmatism to her younger sister, uh, Constanza. Uh, who um, turned out, I think, to be, uh, you know, in, in, in my view, um, a really, really um, talented, brilliant person in her own right, but not precisely as a singer. She was possibly the least talented singer of, of uh, the sisters. Um, but, uh, but she was, I think, all the more important, uh, a sort of collaborator and, uh, and uh, um, helpmate for, uh, for, for Mozart himself. Uh, and really, I think, you know, as his relationship with his with his father soured over the 1780s, partly because Leopold disapproved of the Weber sisters and all of their deeds. Uh, so so uh, heartily, um, I think Constanza really um, became an increasingly important sort of organizing figure in Mozart's life and someone that he really relied on for. Uh, for his sense of himself, for uh, motivation, for organization, for all sorts of stuff that, that he wasn't very good at. Hmm. Yeah, fascinating. All right, so now you have a, a wonderful passage where you compare uh, Mozart to Prince, and uh, specifically Prince's Little Red Corvette. So I'm yes. curious why you chose that particular song. And, um, you know, when we talk about Prince, a lot of us rock critics, we talk about the Mozartian aspects to Prince's talent, right? Which is just sort of just exactly. and like, just like, like oceanic in its breadth and scale and unstoppability. And yeah. um, I, I find the Prince uh, comparison apt, but I'm just really curious where you why you focus in on that one song. Okay, good. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, the funny thing about the Prince comparison is that uh, you know, people really separate readers out into two camps. There, are, I, I and, and I feel like it's it's not really perfect for either of those camps. There are people who either just don't get it at all and can't figure out what I'm getting at, or there are people for whom it's so obvious. <laughs> I mean, it's almost a sort of you know, in the in the world of people who are interested in both classical music and rock music, as you say, it's sort of almost a cliche. You know, it's one of the yeah. sort of the most the most out of Minneapolis. So, right, so right. It, it, it felt it felt like I it felt like he was he you know it, it felt to me when I was writing it that that was the right person to go for in a way. As I say, it's meant that the book is that that aspect of the book is in a way pleased no one. <laughs> uh, but it's but it's a a bit of the writing that I that I that I like the best and that means the most to me because uh, because I really um, felt I suppose what really decided in the end was that precise song 
uh, and was the way that that song really seemed to come out of a similar sort of um, uh, intense inhabitation of different approaches to musical form and to what passion is and to what life is. Uh, you know, it seems to be a very casual song, of course, you know, it's about it's sort of cliches of nightlife and pickups and, and um, uh, you know, beautiful lovers and all of this sort of stuff. But it's built around, uh, you know, as I point out, it's built around this, this, this rhyme between the word fast, as in, you know, you're, you're way too fast, and wanting something to last. Uh, uh, and that's, that's the sort of pivot of the song for me. And that's oh. indeed the pivot of the career of someone like Prince and a song like Mozart is this extraordinary sense of velocity and yeah, veracity yeah. Yeah. going through cultural materials of having a talent so extreme that it seems to sort of eat up the ground underneath you like a sort of cartoon character uh, where you're having to lay down the tracks as you're running along. And at the same time, you're the most expert demolition um, um, merchant of, of, of those same tracks beneath your own feet. And at the same time, you're doing all of this to show off to others anyway. You know, um, with the fact that you, you need your feet on the ground, you know, you need to know where you're running, otherwise all this is gonna go nowhere, you're gonna self-destruct. Uh, and, you know, I, I think there was an intense self-destructive element in both Mozart and Prince um, because of the speed with which they went at their lives. You know, there was a sort of accelerated, um, um, in contact with the world with both of them uh, and I think Little Red Corvette for me you know the, the, the title of the song says what it's about it's about it's about a world that's going too fast and needing mm. to make a shape within it that's going to last mm. uh, and uh, and uh, and the sound of the song for me you know the, the fact that the song is so it's so it's very hard to say whether it's a ballad or not uh, there are versions of it where it sounds like a ballad uh, more than others. There are versions mm. of it where it sounds like disco. There are versions of it where, you know, you can hear it's, it's got a very strange, I think, relationship to speed as a song mm. uh, that I like very much. And that reminded me of, the sort of you know, in a very different way um, of the uh, of, of, of the of the playfulness uh, of Mozart's music um, mm. in relation to time as well. Um, so, yeah. And I wanted something that would I wanted something that would. Uh, uh, I wanted a song that would speak with this intensity of um, direct appeal to the senses and the emotions. I guess that's the sort of broader analogy that I wanted to draw on between classical music in the 18th century and, you know, broadly American pop music of the 20th century. Uh, that it's, uh, that, that, you know, that that song, that there couldn't be anything more obvious than that song in a way. Like it's, it's rivetingly pleasurable and hedonistic. Uh, uh, almost unpleasantly so, you know, in, in, <laughs> in, in, in uh, uh, you know, unpleasantly direct in its pleasure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, with the fact that, you know, that means that it ends up, I think, posing the question of pleasure with and, and of what we're doing with all these pleasures, with what these pleasures mean in our lives, with whether lives based on these sorts of pleasures can actually make sense and can actually cohere and can actually build a coherent world for us, let alone others. You know, it, it raises those questions with this startling, I think clarity that's that, that's also intensely easily missed precisely because it's uh, so pleasurable. So fascinating to hear you talk about that because most most people I converse with about that song or rock criticism anyway tends to just think about well that's the shiny object and it's a car so that's one of the great symbols of speed and lust and desire right. in modern culture yeah. right. So what would be the analogous shiny object in Mozart's world, right? And would would that be the quintet where he's trying to invent like maybe a new form or a shiny new Exactly, yeah. So that's right. So that the the uh you know, it's uh, yeah, it's with sound. I mean, I think the ultimate shiny object in in that in the Prince song and in Mozart, I mean, it's got an extraordinarily brilliant sound that song you know it's a beautifully beautifully produced sound where you can really hear a lot of 80s pop music including prince's later sound uh, sort of emerging it's really the it's really the song in in, in uh, you know where, where it is uh, the second song in 1999 uh where, where it sort of defines i think what a lot of american pop music was going to sound like for the rest of that decade and we sort of take that sound for granted now but there's an intense love of sonic possibility itself yes. and of layering and of juxtaposition and of little harmonic crunches and tweaks. Yes. Yes. Uh, and I think exactly, so the, the, the work that I juxtapose it with directly in, in the most work is with um, this K452 quintet, which was equally, you know, uh, not just innovative musically, but innovative sonically, you know, it was a really totally different sound world. It was uh, a quintet for, for, for piano and winds where uh, and I, I, I talk about how it sort of came out of the uh, experiments that he'd been undergoing at the time with, with the piano concerto, the keyboard concerto. The keyboard was in a state of intense flux 
as an instrument itself in 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 around 1780, as I sort of talk about it, uh, probably exhausting length in the book at various points um, because of the transition, broadly speaking, between the harpsichord and the piano. Um, to, to put it in sort of broad terms, that um, uh, that that uh, that you know, and, and that to me is analogous. So I guess broadly speaking, the coming of electronic music through the 70s and 80s and the displacement of the world of the band um, by the world of the studio. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's going on in Prince's career hmm. uh, very complicatedly and um, uh, and that his particular artistic personality is sort of built around a very strange uh, navigation of a very interesting and, you know, comprehensively diffuse and multifarious navigation of. Uh, and, uh, and, and what Mozart's doing in that particular uh, quintet is taking two elements from the world of the piano concerto that he'd built up, which is to say a new version of keyboard sound and a new version of how to compose for the keyboard and the new wind sonorities that it had um, allowed him to generate that he'd used in order to provide different sorts of accompaniment and um, juxtaposition and analogy um, to, 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 to the keyboard uh, and extracted them from the stuff that had held them together, which is to say the strings, you know, the string orchestra, which had been the, the, the sort of glue of concerto form that while he was innovating with all the different possibilities in, in, in the middle of the, um, um, in the early 1780s, that, that was the thing that was sort of holding them together. And with that quintet, he sort of gets rid of the glue, if you like, and sees what happens, which you just try and make the pieces stay together on their own terms. Mm -hmm. And it means that every sound has to be both, it feels both intensely fluid and extraordinarily neatly organized. It has to sort of hold its own um, with an extraordinary level of sort of dexterity and structural tension, while also feeling intensely new and, you know, if you like, the shiny and <laughs> fluid and all the <laughs> little red Corvette type adjectives. I mean, of course, you know, and a, and a Corvette is a similar sort of object, like it's right, a right, shiny right. surface um, that if, it, if it's, um, if it's um, um, as red as Prince's one sounds, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, you know, you're gonna see the surface float past you, but actually there's an extraordinary sort of whirring machinery um, uh, going on be be beneath it that's holding right, the whole right. together. So that, that, that's, the, that's the idea then. Yeah, it's great. I can definitely when I hear you talk about it, I can definitely hear in Prince's recording a new there's there's a tension between the ravishing and the spareness. Right? Yes, exactly. So, yeah. So yeah. Great detail, great sort of an etching, but also yeah. just a profusion of yeah. ideas and color and everything. That's right. Yeah. Achieved yeah. through that spare quality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it becomes really. Yeah, exactly. You sort of follow that through. You get kiss on the one hand. Uh, um, where the Spanish, uh, if you know that song, where the Spanish. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. That's enough. That definitely made uh, me think of Kit. Yeah. Has its apotheosis, or you have, you know, an, an album of his that I particularly that I, that I love that I think is underrated these days is Around the World in a Day, where oh. he tries to do the sort of psychedelic, you know, sort of cosmic. It, you know, I don't think it works quite as well, but it's a very, very brilliant attempt to, uh, to sort of uh, do a sort of Hendrix type studio sound yeah. mediated through the late Beatles. Yes, um, I think psychedelia is really hard. I really do. Right. <laughs> I think it's like I like a comedy. I think it's delicate. I think it's fragile. Yeah. And I think you're going for an effect of multiplicity and color and vibrancy yeah. that is extremely um, difficult to pull off. Yeah. Uh, the, stones don't, the stones don't pull it off. Uh, no, yeah, Prince, yeah. Is, Prince is a sort of a noble uh, attempt, you know, and since yeah. some works better than others. Uh, but uh, psychedelia is a very weird, it's very, it's yeah. a very odd beast, I think. Yeah. I also think psych psychedelia is really hard. It would make a great slogan for a t-shirt to sell at Grateful Dead concerts. You know, I think it could, uh, <laughs> it could, could catch on. Psychedelia is harder than you think. <laughs> it's harder than you think. Well, yeah. I, just read this, I just read this book on Nebraska and there's a, there's a uh, little Stephen yeah. about how he says, Pink Floyd is easy. Uh -huh. Louis Louis is hard. Right. <laughs> I think it's really great distillation of that idea. Yeah. 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 All right. So um let's talk, let's dive in a little bit closer to, to Mozart music now. What what do you find some of the harder aspects of Mozart's music to describe? The harder aspects. Um I mean, when I set out, I assumed it was, I was going to find it all hard. In fact, I wasn't even sure there was going to be a book there because everyone talks about how hard it is to describe music. And and that was that was really the premise that I started off with. Um, so, um, in, a, in a way, I was astonished to find any of it possible at all in the first place. And the, the way that I, the way that I did that, I am now, I, I will come back to what I continue to find hard in a second, but if I just talk a moment about the technique that I developed for, for, uh, for, for why I find it possible at all, sure. then maybe that'll help to clarify that. Um, 
that 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 it's uh, you know that I just decided okay I just need to assume that whatever these things are about they're about the same things that our lives are about um, um, you know that 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 if a, that, 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 that there's a sort of directness and a concern with our ordinary human emotion and need and questioning and so on and that and that if I just take the questions that you know, raise themselves in a normal life, or at least in my abnormal life, <laughs> uh, so far as it seems to connect with other people's more normal ones, um, um, to the to the music and and stick with those questions and see and see if the music can come up with answers to them or at least ways of rephrasing the questions. Then we'll see whether that counts as a description. And it seemed to me that it did in the end. Uh, it seemed to me that that was what that was my sort of way in as someone who's not a musicologist. Uh, whose own musical training is, you know, rudimentary at best. Um, uh, that, that seemed to be the, the way to do it. I don't th the thing that I continued to struggle with, I suppose, was how to, how to put that back together with the, 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 the musicological descriptions that I've learned a lot from. Uh, and um, in particular, I guess, uh, what to do, you know, broadly speaking, what to do about sonata form is the way that this question, you know, kept on raising itself um, through through my thinking about it. And, you know, partly that's also a generational thing in that uh, because I'm not a, you know, not a professional musicologist, so I've done a lot of reading around this stuff. Um, a lot of my original reading was, you know, a few decades ago in a way, uh, I mean, both in my own life, but in terms of what I was reading too, because I wasn't necessarily reading the most up-to-date stuff. I was learning from, uh, from you know, the, the sort of greats of mid 20th century classical musicology. So I felt like I was very sort of saturated. I have a little sort of homage to Charles Rosen's famous book, The Classical Style, mm -hmm. I think in the, in the bibliographical section of my book, because it, you know, it meant so much to me and it's very important to me and it continues to be very important to me. Um, but, um, but, but, but that vision of sonata form is one, uh, you know, and Rosen's is an extraordinarily brilliant and, and I think sort of existentially very alive and vital version of it. But I, but I you know, I find the, the, the more diagrammatic and, uh, and uh, uh, you know, virtually mathematical versions of it riveting and often very plausible too. Uh, and yet I found them difficult to piece together with my experience in the music. And at the same time, they'd become increasingly, you know, unfashionable, bordering on derided within uh, classical music criticism and scholarship, you know, certainly at its more, you know, uh, cutting edge um, um, uh, areas, uh, as, as I, you know, understood them over the last couple of decades, at least. So I was grappling with a lot of those issues, what to do with the fact that I felt like sonata form was right as a description of a lot of how this works formally, uh, not fully or easily um, uh, uh, to be rectified with my other ways of looking at the music and anyway being treated as wrong by a lot of people who are more informed and more up-to-date in their thinking about classical music um, so that I mean that's a you know that's a very very broad brush um, yeah, but, take on but you, you know I, I don't know the thing I liked about the book was that it you know it brought a new a, a new kind of fresh intelligence to the material right and mm -hmm. so uh, it, it by by not feeling beholden to the musicological approaches, right? I think I felt like it was very, very refreshing to hear someone describe this music in terms that they understood and that felt true to them. Yeah, and it, it it you know it was very convincing, very persuasive. Well, that's great. I mean, that's exactly that was the sort of gamblers. But I mean, I also in a way had the advantage of again going back to you know the, the first topic we, we we were on about. Um, if if I you know if I was finding something difficult, I didn't have to do it. Um, you know, no one was no one was asking me to read the book anyway. But certainly, they weren't telling me this has to be in it, this has to be in it, and this has to be in it. Well, that's when there were works when there were works that I didn't. Um, um, I mean, I guess I guess for me, one of the major lacunae in the book, which is probably where where this particular problem of what to do about sonata forms that already raised its head. And it goes back to what I was saying about the quintet a minute ago. Like there isn't, um, a f there isn't quite as much on some of the piano concertos as certainly in terms of my understanding of like the central impetus of Mozart's artistic identity and achievement and so on go are really like the heart of it for me, you know, along with the operas. Um, so I have, I have a, one chapter about one of the big concertos. Um, uh, but uh, but I, I think I've stinted to some extent on them. And I think that was for good reasons a lot of the time. Uh, it was very, you know, that they are the most consistent, they're, they're the ones where it's hardest to draw out like particular ones from the others. They're the most, it's, I think it's the most consistent body of achievement. Um, uh, the sort of major piano concertos. Uh, 
Oh, I suppose I had no idea which two because I deal with the, the what I call the Genome Concerto from earlier in the career too. But that that's before the the major run of Viennese concerto, so I think of as the as as the heart of it all. Um, so so insofar as insofar as there's something there that makes me think, ah, I'd like to have another go at that aspect. Yeah. Uh, oh, I didn't quite get that right. It's probably probably those works. Yeah. So, um, do you have any favorite Mozart quotes from critics that you read that you like to reflect upon? Yeah, uh, I can't get. Yes, I mean, actually, some of them I don't. It's a, quite a while since I wrote the book, and I sometimes can't remember which ones uh, I cut from it and which ones I didn't. There was yeah. a lot more about other writers on Mozart in previous drafts. Yeah, uh, and uh, I, I think, uh, I think, I think from George Bernard Shaw. Uh, yeah, yeah. The the, 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 the line about the, the line that I that I use as a way into talking about his his unoriginality. You know, the fact that he's this sort of great anthologist of the 18th century. I think that was really important to me hmm. um, because I started off, as I say, really feeling I had something to say about Mozart as a gateway to modernity. Uh, and I felt like when I was starting out, that meant for me, I was trying to distinguish him from the 18th century uh, and show how he was innovating and rebelling and doing something new. And I, the, the project really came into focus for me. And the Shaw quote was, was part of that um, around realizing that actually it was because he was so characteristic of the 18th century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that he was able to escape from it, if you like. You yeah. know, it's because he had, it's because he'd absorbed it more fully than anyone else alive, partly because of his extraordinary childhood as well as his extraordinary talent. And because of the nature of 1780 Vienna and all sorts of complicated factors that aren't just, you know, saying, okay, he was this individual genius, although that's part of it too. Right. Uh, but, the, but the, you know, it's that combination that I think Shaw really helped me with. Yeah, interesting. Great. I, I mean, Shaw lit me up. When I discovered his music criticism, it just, it just yeah. lit me oh, up. That's really interesting, yeah. Right, and nobody knows that he has three volumes of really terrific criticism. And it's brilliant, some, yeah. It's some of that really... reads like Lester Bangs, that stuff. It's so yes. funny. It's yeah, so hilarious. It funny and passionate and sort of opinionated um but also there's an odd there's an extraordinary generosity of spirit to it as well a real sense that sometimes you get with with you know Shaw I mean I love Shaw as a writer generally uh but but that sort of you know grandiose dandyishness uh somehow is under control he's so I suppose because of his admiration you know he's so passionately devoted to you know Mozart of course but also Wagner also um Beethoven, I think he's brilliant on Elgar. I mean, Elgar probably—it's probably not so important to Americans for all sorts of reasons to try and find a way to love Elgar despite everything. <laughs> but, <you> know, <laughs> but for British listeners uh, who um, are fed up with a certain sort of, you know, propagandistic. Um, oh, I love Elgar. All around Elgar. You don't um, have to, you don't have to persuade me on Elgar. I love Elgar. Yeah, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Well, it, you know that he's so good on Elgar as a you know a great German composer, <laughs> right. uh, which was uh, refreshing. Um, and do you have any favorite Mozart players who you turn to over and over again that help you hear him anew? And that you... yes, absolutely. Yeah, that's another aspect of the book that I that I the previous drafts had a bit more of. Um, so yeah, I mean, so many. Um, uh, dating back to, you know, I, I, uh, I love um, Eric Kleiber as a conductor, uh, who I learned Carlos Kleiber's father, he's most famous um, for being these days, but, um, but, um, but an amazing um, Mozart interpreter as well as of everyone else. Uh, um, uh, and of, of, the, of the previous generations too, also Friedrich Gulder, the pianist, I don't know if you're a fan of, fan of his at all, um, but uh, extraordinary, you know, very, very um, classically oriented, you know, Viennese, brilliant virtuoso and so on, who became extraordinarily outlandish later in his career and discovered mm. jazz and indeed psychedelia and discovered mm. how hard psychedelia could be by uh, insisting on giving some of his concerts naked and all sorts of things uh, going on like that. But his later Mozart recordings that he did just for himself that Deutsche Grammophon um, managed to, to extract from um, very strange sort of homemade tapes in, 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 recent, in recent years uh, are absolutely remarkable, I think, because they show him you know, in a way, sort of fusing these two sides of his career finally towards oh. the end. Then the more recent interpreters, I mean, I when I was when I was um, going around listening to, I, I went to so many concerts, you know, it was one of the joys of writing this book that it just gave me an excuse to, you know, go to concerts and operas and call it work, if you like. Right. Uh, and um, just to, 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 to name a few, there's a there's a, a, a British uh, conductor, I mean, his group indeed has changed his name to being called the Mozartists because of his devotion to Mozart, called, but Ian Page, uh, who's done an extraordinary job of uh, juxtaposing Mozart with other music of the period. Um, hmm. 
and, and amazing. You know, I think there's a, there's a whole new generation coming through now of, you know, essentially people who've sort of um, got an extraordinarily liberated grasp of what I think was originally a rather sort of embattled and occasionally for all sorts of good reasons, pedagogically rigid version of historically informed performance practice. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, that was, as you'll know, that, and, uh, many will know that that was, you know, this huge sort of battleground around, in a way, particularly around the, the, the late 18th century music, because music from before then sort of always belonged to the early music specialists. So if they started to treat it ever more didactically as something that only they could understand in particular ways, that was sort of okay by people to a certain extent. But the battleground really became Mozart and Beethoven and, and uh, late 18th century music. Uh, and I feel like that the, the sort of fruits of that, we're now getting the fruits of that battle. We're now getting a yeah. whole lot of people who've got, you know, who know that language inside out, but who also uh, are able to explore it on their own terms and with great sort of passionate inventiveness and so on. There's a, a keyboard uh, player in this country, I don't know how well known he is in the States, called Christian Beseidenhut, uh, who um, plays, he's done a, done a complete recording of Mozart's um, solo keyboard music and is, and is now sort of doing a slightly more um, um, unpredictable sort of survey dance around of the of the concertos, and he's incredibly I learned a lot from him. But equally, there's an incredibly traditional um, in lots of ways. I mean, also radically idiosyncratic and peculiar in certain ways. Um, he, 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 pianist, you know, and I use the word advisedly because he really plays the piano with great sort of old-fashioned sonority, etc. Uh, called Christian Blackshaw. Is that a name that means anything to American? Oh, I'm Ah, well, check him out. Really, really extraordinary, extraordinary figure um, uh, who um, had a long hiatus in his career. So he's a sort of, uh, I, I remember going along to one of, the, one of the, he was doing a survey of Mozart's um, sonatas at the Wigmore Hall. And I went along to one of the, he's really not very well known at all because he'd taken this long sabbatical for, you know, like decades long sabbatical for complicated personal reasons uh, and turned up to one of these concerts. And there, there in the audience were Alfred Brendel and Bryn Terfel. You know, in this small chamber music audience, you know, so okay, the, this is <laughs> the word must be good on this guy. You know, mm -hmm. yeah, maintained an extraordinary reputation, uh, and I, you know, deservedly so. He, he's his recordings of his stuff, and that interesting. Uh, that's a lot of those are a lot of names to investigate. I don't, I don't know a lot of those names, um, but yeah, I find the original instrument movement. Um, I don't want to say failed in its first generation, but we really are reaping the benefits in the second generation yeah, as yeah. those ideas flow down. And now even, even on people who are playing stuff on steel strings, they're understanding how to exactly. do about vibrato and stuff like yeah. that. And so I don't, do you know the Andras Schiff Brahms piano concerto recordings? Ah, but no, I don't know that, but um, actually, no, I, I should really look that out. That's well, exactly. they're on the, they're on a, uh, uh, a period instrument. I think it's an 1860 instrument, which means it's all wood. It's not steel. That paper. makes sense. Yeah. And I can't tell you how beautiful, I can't tell you how much sense it makes. So yeah, it's really yeah. interesting to see it trickle down to Brahms. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Um, yeah. And it's very, very, it's very uh, chamber oriented sounding. It's not yeah. big, booming, big. No, that makes sense. So I heard, I heard um, Schiff um, in concert um, playing the Emperor Concerto. Um, five or so months ago and it was one of those concerts that I went along to you know it's a real sort of war horse concert really old-fashioned right. it was like an overture a symphony a, and a concerto you know right. and and I thought well you know but on the other hand it's Andras Schiff maybe it'll be great and oh it was extraordinary it was absolutely staggering like the yeah. commitment to it and the, the sense of yeah the, the, the sense that he's really been rejuvenated by contact with all these different instruments I think he I think he really has I haven't listened he has a new uh, rec recording on clavichord and i haven't listened to that yet i'm a little bit wary of that but i can't recommend the brahms enough i that's, think it's great yeah i think they're that's on great. ecms and it's both they're on both on one disc and he's conducting and right. it's very uh it's very intimate it's very um you 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 really it's sort of like you get your brain washed of yeah, all, right. all the histrionics from those brahms those oh, big that's great uh so interesting well patrick i'd really i'd love to keep chatting forever there's obviously a lot of stuff that we can keep uh talking about i hope we do stay in touch absolutely if you have just a couple more minutes i really am curious because i teach postmodernism in a oh sure yeah yeah I right oh i see yeah and i'm curious what definition of postmodernism you find most useful <laughs> okay <laughs> this is now taking me back decades to the 1990s when i was sort of lecturing on this stuff and actually i tell you what i did I, I what i found most helpful and this is partly through jameson and partly also through um 
through through Charles Jenks, um, if that's a name that means much to you. He's a, a well-known over here architect and uh, theorist uh, uh, who has some claim to be the person who first used the term postmodernism. Ah, hmm. uh, um, and use it specifically in the architectural setting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that I think that that's, that that was how I ended up. You know, partly for the purposes of pedagogical clarity, uh, because it, it feels good to have a sort of area in which to locate a term. But yes, I ended yes. up thinking, okay, the thing to do is to double down on architecture as the major narrative and talk about how other things have emerged from that. Just because, in a way, because modernism itself, because architecture is such, you know, because it's so hard to get a building built and it's so expensive and it takes such an institutional commitment and financial commitment and commitment of engineering, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. The style takes hold in architecture, it really takes hold. Yeah. And modernism really took hold. Like the international yeah. style in architecture is just one of the stunning achievements and um, amazingly sort of resonant, grand, you know, institutional sort of fact on the ground. So I think when that started to get eroded and when, uh, you know, uh, when people started to look for new possibilities there, postmodernism had to sort of prove itself. Uh, and, and indeed, you know, to move on from modernism was that much more sort of traumatic and interesting. And, you know, that's why there are these interesting books in architecture, you know, in the 1970s and was such an extraordinary period for thinking yeah. about architecture with, uh, you know, learning from Las Vegas and yeah. Delirious New York and uh, books like that. So, uh, so, so uh, and of course, also it links it to urban experience so directly too. So I think that's the area where I ended up finding my feet. Well, it's, a, it's always a good sense? example. It's all yeah. It's always a good example for students because you can show it. You can say exactly. So, yeah. so this is yeah. not this is not a structural element. This is a decorative element. So exactly. Why, why did they do it right? Yeah. So yeah. it's to comment on aspects of structure that otherwise would go uncommented. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's a way of drawing their attention. But I've um, I've just tried to use I just tried to use my own definitions. I find so, so just so many terrible definitions of it. I yeah. can't use any of them. Yeah. But yeah. I try, I also try and use Sergeant Pepper as like a major. That's one of the early major pieces that actually oh, that's right. yeah. deploys it in in a kind of a self-conscious way, in a way that's very easy to explain. Yeah, yeah. We're a band. We're not the Beatles. We're a different band. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to do our first studio record that starts out with crowd noises. Right. Um, that's right. a big yes. joke, right? And yeah. And then by the end, the curtain comes down, and then we have this epilogue that actually is not part of the show. Right? I see. Yeah. So you yeah. have a discrete show, and then you have this this sort of nervous breakdown at the very end, which is post yeah. show. So it's like, what is the? It's a bit. And then you then you have to also explain the word existential because everyone says <laughs> day in the life is existential, right? So what does that mean? And you'll get sixteen different explanations of the word exactly. existential, yeah. right? Yeah. So for me, the Beatles are the ones who actually do this, you know, this great um, uniting integration of the high and the low, and that's like yeah. Yeah. one yeah. of the great themes. And you, a book you should know about if you don't yeah. is called Magic Circles by Devin McKinney. Oh, that, right. Have you the name of the writer, but not the not that it's book. A, well, so it's a Harvard University Press book. Not many people know it. It is uh -huh. really a fantastic book. You're going to love this book. It's oh, just okay. Okay. so idea-driven. He also has a wonderful biography of Henry Fonda, which oh, really? is a little bit, yeah, a yeah. little bit um, uh, of a swerve, but he's such a wonderful writer. He's got yeah. such great, he's a lot, That's he reminds me of you, actually. He's got really great style and really great ideas. So oh, I have to look that up. My, my sister is named, uh, named Clementine after the, uh, the Fonda movie, which was uh, on TV. Uh, when, when my mother was uh, was pregnant with her, so really, uh, so, so so Henry Fonda feels like. Um, I mean, of course, his family life wasn't necessarily ideal, but I, you know, I he's, say he feels no, like part great, of the family in a certain it's way. A, the Very interesting. Called, the book is called "The Man Who Saw a Ghost," and oh, uh, really, yeah, and it's built around his apparently his father took him to a lynching when he was a child, and he and this really scarred him, and it made him, uh, you know, quite cognizant of the dissonance in american life gosh um, i'd love to keep chatting it's it's really fun to meet you thank you so much for your time and um, likewise likewise exactly. thanks so much for the um you know enthusiasm about the book and i'm really grateful for for, great. for um you're putting it out there and so on and i'm, I'm i hope we'll stay in touch i'm sure we will stay in touch so, great um, thank yeah. you so much patrick great good night Bye -bye. Now.